Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is Narbe Alexandrian, founder and CEO of Riv Capital. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Really excited. All right, before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can email me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. All right, Narbe, I wanted to get started by learning a little bit about how you got involved in the cannabis industry. How did it start? I joined uh, what, what Riv Capital used to be called Canopy Rivers. I joined that back in the summer of 2018. Prior to that, I've always uh, had a good relationship with cannabis, um, was, but was from a professional perspective, was watching the industry for quite some time. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who I bumped into at my wedding, actually, a year before, um, mentioned to me that he was moving away from the banking world into the cannabis world, told me that like it's legitimizing, it's legalizing in Canada, you should really check it out. I was a bit hesitant at first. I had been to some shows in the past, and it wasn't very professionalized relative to where I came from, which is the technology venture capital world. But I took his, uh, I, I took his word for it. In the, the in winter of 2017, beginning of 2018, I went to a few uh, conferences, um, took his pass, went in there, and I noticed that there was quite a dramatic shift away from what cannabis looked like in 2015 to what it looked like in 2017, 2018, with legalization just around the corner, expected to be July, but ended up being October of uh, 2018. So um, I, uh, I, I, I made, I, I thought about it. I looked at, I did some research. I looked at growth rates. I looked at the U.S. market, the Canadian market, European market, and thought, you know what, this might be just the once in a lifetime opportunity of joining a revolution where not only do I have a good relationship with the product and 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 I have used it, understand it, and 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 think that I really highly from a recreational perspective, but there's a whole medical side which. Um, quite frankly, as a consumer, you don't really see unless you, you have a me- medical reason to do so. So um, started getting into it a bit more uh, from a business perspective and just thought that this looked exactly like the tech industry. To, to give a bit of background, prior to joining the cannabis industry, I was in the largest technology VC fund in Canada, Venture Capital, where we uh, invested anywhere from 500000 to $100 million into companies. Like, so just, just large, small to large checks technology company, Shopify being the one that um, made the, the highest return. There's a number of them since then as well that, that have uh, exited. So uh, really, that, that there's a lot of similarities between tech and cannabis in the sense that in the technology world, you don't know what the future looks like. You know the technologies you have now, but you're kind of extrapolating what technology looks like in 10, 20 years from now. In the cannabis world, is the same thing. Uh, you're coming into it, don't know what legalization looks like don't know what federal legalization in the US or interstate commerce looks like, and you're making a bet on how that plays out. Either you're buying cultivation or you're buying ancillary or you're investing in this or investing in that. So I thought that there was a lot of similarities there, uh, but uh, the the difference was not much competition in the cannabis side relative to what you saw on the technology side, which was decades and decades of capital and firms being developed that cater towards that industry. So thought it was a great opportunity to jump in and never regretted it since then. Is it what was it like after making that move from venture capital in the tech industry over to cannabis? You know, something that, like you said, was kind of pretty cutthroat in terms of competition to sort of a wide open market. That's a great question. I mean, there, there were some 
there wasn't much competition from the capital allocation perspective. There was there's a lot of angel investors, as in high net worth individuals in this industry, even today, where they made money maybe in another industry, uh, or they made money in cannabis and they're recycling it into new companies, new brands, new firms, new technologies, new equipment manufacturers, etc. Um, so th- that part still exists. There was no institutional type investor in the space that did private equity or venture capital work. So um, thought that was, was, was a huge opportunity there. Um, the downside of it was when you're talking to entrepreneurs um, and typically entrepreneurs in this industry, um, a, a large chunk of them come from just loving the product or cannabis itself, not necessarily coming from a hey, I'm a scientist and I'm just checking out this product and getting into it. They have a personal relationship to it. And for many, um, they, they lack the understanding of typical business terms. So for, for example, when uh, in, in the technology industry, widespread, if you are a firm or a person putting in a large chunk of capital into the company, say that, say, David, you have a brand new company and I put in a million dollars into your company. And this is the first amount of money that you've seen large enough that can, can kind of shape the future of your company. There's some restrictions that are in place. For example, you can't go and, um, and raise capital right after me and cram me down. You can't go and sell the company without telling me ahead of time. You can't go pick up debt and have that sit over equity. Why? Because I'm a, I only own a minority stake and I want to make sure that you're, uh, you're not doing anything that screws me over. Mm-hmm. So these things are put into an agreement. On the cannabis side, these very standard terms, when you're presenting them to to uh, um, the, the, the founders or, or the operators of these companies, they would look at it as you're handcuffing me, you're not letting me do things. And it was a bit of an educating process to, just to say, we're all on the same team, we all want this company to grow. I just can't have you cramming me down or changing the, the capital structure on me without me knowing because I'm the biggest check and I took the biggest risk here. So um, none of that was di- was difficult to overcome, but it was a bit of an educating uh, perspective within uh, in investing, which... Uh, I frankly hadn't seen the technology industry because everyone knew about it. So how did you found Riv Capital? Um, so I, I actually came in uh, as the for one of the first employees of Riv Capital. So Riv Capital was founded by two investment bankers who uh, never took real operational control of the company. So they built this thing out with thinking it'd be growth uh, and then pushed it to uh, become an independent autonomous company. And then at that point in time, brought someone in to operate the company, which is me. Okay. So um, I, it's, a, it, it's a bit of a technical term because we built the Riv Capital that you see today uh, for, the, for the most part, uh, but the original articles of incorporation and so forth weren't done through us. Our, our thinking was always that uh, this, this is going to be a massive once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. If you look at the illicit markets, you can see how big the market would be. If you look to the polls, you can see how many Americans and Canadians and Europeans want cannabis legalization. So when you have the demand and you have the supply come together at the same time, there's no doubt this was going to be a huge industry. Question was, what role did you want to play in it? So we were taking a look at just the different perspectives. We broke down the value chain in, um, in, in, in nine categories, 50 different subcategories to say, where do we think the, the puck is headed versus what everyone else is doing? And uh, for, for a long period of time, all of our data kept going towards, we need to go to the U.S. market. We were a bit handcuffed at first uh, into going to the U.S. market. We were on the Canadian exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange. We had Canopy Growth who owned uh, multi-voting shares into our company and they controlled us. Uh, and they had 
constellation above them as well. And we were, we were a bit handcuffed in terms of being able to go to the US market. We, we, we couldn't do it. We couldn't touch the plant. So we made investments in ancillary side. And for 18 to 24 months, we were working day and night to find out either if there's a structure for us to get in or if there was a way for us to um, shed canopy growth and the restrictions that we had and go in ourselves. And each of those had their pluses and minuses, pros and cons to it. Um, we found structures that worked. We, we were uh, investors in Terrasen. Terrasen flipped to the US. We still own those shares, but we had exchangeable shares. And then through Canopy Growth, through all the management changes that were taking shape between Bruce and Mark, and then finally David, we had to figure that out as well. And every single time it was a bit of a re-educating process of, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Can you help us? Uh, but we weren't necessarily the top priority with within their stack because they had a whole company and, and market share to figure out. So that took us quite some time. In December of 2020, we finally came to a deal that we could take to our shareholders. We sold three of our portfolio companies. Uh, there are interests in them to Canopy Growth, one of them being Terrasend, for about 380 million Canadian at the time of close. We took a chunk of that, bought out Canopy Growth and said restrictions and handcuffs are off. We took a portion of that and retired a liability that we had inherited from our predecessors as well. And we're off to the races in the U.S., free and clear. The con was we didn't have this large corporate strategic behind us. Mm -hmm. The pro was we could go to the U.S. and touch the plant all we wanted to. So uh, in the meantime, we we reintroduced ourselves to Scott's Milk Grow, the big fertilizer company. They had a division called Hawthorne, which uh, um, has over a billion of run rate revenue in the cannabis space. Uh, and and they invested Hawthorne, uh, a subsidiary of Scott's Milk Grow, uh, the, the Hawthorne Collective invested uh, 150 million US into us. Um, and now we have $405 million of capital. Uh, not much left on the venture capital side because we've li liquidated most of it, but uh, zoned in, focused in on the US market and hoping to announce something soon. Um, <clears throat> speaking of announcing something soon, when you uh, came out with your, I believe it was your Q3 results a couple of weeks ago, um, you had said in a statement that you're looking at a strategic shift to the US market. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. So the venture capital model in a public entity just doesn't work. Um, and it took us a while to really come to terms with that. And we tried different ways to, to try to um, recreate create something that didn't really exist in any other industry. And the reason it doesn't exist is as follows. Like, as a venture capital investor, you're investing in minority stakes into early stage companies, helping them out, watching them scale, and ultimately getting to some sort of a monetization situation, which is they sell to another company or they go public. Um, that can take two, three years, 10 years even. I think the average time frame from founding to exit for a technology company in the US is about 9.2 years. So it just takes a long time for, for to get to that position. But as a public company, every quarter you have to go to the market and say, this is what I've done. This is what I've seen. This is what we're doing. And those two things don't align because one of them, the, the, the venture capital model requires some patience. The public company model requires results every quarter um, for, for shareholders. So uh, we, we decided to pivot away from that. We decided to pivot and look at the U.S. market to pivot to become an operator. Um, so over the past year, we've looked at dozens of companies, single state operators, MSOs from a variety of different areas, California, Nevada, Arizona, all the way to New York, New Jersey, down to Florida, and uh, we, we've looked at the regimes in the different states. We've rated them, graded them. Uh, we've looked at different players within the market right now. 
uh, from, from an MSO perspective, what mistakes they made. We know them very well as well. And we, we decided to take a different approach to it. We decided to take a more long-term consumer-centric approach, not necessarily focusing too much on the capital markets, but more so focusing on how is this industry going to blossom and develop within 10 years, 20 years from now. So um, when you look at it from that perspective, you, you look at the lens of what states you want to play in completely change. And uh, so, so we're, we're focused on um, announcing something very, very soon, which puts us in a great position um, and uh, really helps us get to where we want to in that, uh, in that time frame. But at the same time, uh, uh, we, we we're just very attracted to the limited license states because of the fact of being first uh, in front of the consumer and being there before things open up. Okay. So when you're rating and grading some of these operators, you like to see uh, something that's maybe not in such a mature market? Yes and no. I mean, if you're in California and you're building a brand and you're one of the top 10 brands, you're consistently in the top 10 BDSA or headset, um, that goes to show that not only have you, like California is a very difficult place to compete in, a lot of competition. So if you show up at the top 10 every single time, no, you not only have the talent, but you have the expertise and you have the ability to create quality product that your consumers come to every single time. Not to say there's it's a guarantee that I can flip over to the East Coast market where you just don't really see any good brands that are out there, but it does go to show that um, you, out of all the products and thousands of SKUs that are in the California market, you've beat them all up and, and you've come to the top. So that's kind of what would I what I put to the unlimited license states. That's Washington or Colorado as well, or Oregon. On the East Coast, which is more limited license states, there you see um, a lot of hubris in the sense that there, there are companies out there that think that the limited license regime is going to stay forever. And I think that's a very myopic short-term view. Um, that there's no reason, there's no indication that competition will be concentrated to a few in, few companies where you'll create an oligopoly. Governments don't want to create that themselves. So our perspective is the limited license regimes are there because as governments look to legalize the adult use market, um, ultimately, because they start with medical first, they want to make sure that they can control supply chain. They want to make sure that they know the ins and outs and how the illicit market plays through. Last thing they want is to create this huge uh, legal framework and find out there's leakages from the illicit or into the illicit market. So uh, for, for that, that take it, they take it slow. A few licenses at first, open it up, social equity awards, open it up, open it up, open it up. And then you're going to get into some sort of a, maybe not an unlimited license, but a high cap in terms of how many licenses you can have similar to what you see in Canada. So that, that's our long-term view. So if you take that long-term view and you, and you pull yourself back, you say, okay, well, if you're one of those first companies in those limited license markets, you get to actually show up in front of the consumer ahead of everyone else does. And you can really pump the marketing into those consumers to say, this is the product you should take home. It's quality product. You won't see anything like it. As new producers come in, that's the barrier of entry they have to cross, which is your uh, brand within that market. Um, and, and so instead of focusing on what's the, how can we pump out the most gross margin or EBITDA off of every single consumer, our focus is a bit different. Our focus is how can we uh, be extremely consumer obsessed, provide the highest quality product at the greatest price that we can and own that market into the, into the future. And as we get through the, the scaling process, as we go through the experience curve of 
getting through those steps, um, that's a barrier that other people have to cross. And, and we can pretty much lower the price as time goes on, as we get better and better at this craft. So how many, as you're betting on these companies, how many need to win in order to offset the ones that don't win? Um, so in the, in the venture capital world, you, you typically need one out of every 10 to be a home run. Okay. You need uh, probably two or three to be singles, as in you get your money back or maybe you double your money. You need one of them to 10 exit. And then that covers the rest of them. And the rest, and many of them in, in that world end up being uh, what I call the walking dead, which means that they're not prospering, but they're not die- dead either. Uh, they're not bankrupt, but they're not growing at 100% rates year over year. So for those, you kind of take your foot off the gas and say, um, let it be. Um, mm-hmm. Go, go the, the, the certain path you want to go to. Opportunities to monetize and liquidate and get out of those positions, you would. But you don't want to do anything that uh, harms the company in any way. And, and because of the reputation ethics behind it as well. So um, that's typically the view. In the acquisition world, in the M&A world, every single one of those has to work out. You're just betting way too much money on it, um, but you have full control as well, which is uh, a nice thing to have relative to the venture capital world. When you're working with these early investments in these young companies, you know, how do you, do you get emotionally attached uh, or do you try and kind of stay at a distance? I mean, it's hard not to get emotionally attached to something that you have a thesis around and bet on. But that said, um, you have to really put your emotions to the side. Just like any professional athlete, when they look at the game, they try to put their emotions away and focus on their craft. Um, you just don't want to get have your emotions get the best of you. It, it really requires you. There's a lot of deals that you see that might make a lot of money, but you just don't agree with the ethos and the perspective of the people that are running the company. And there, there's some investors that just don't take that seriously and invest in any way, thinking you can change a person, you can change a style. You can't. Mm-hmm. So um, again, going back to the stat that takes 9.2 years to go from founding to exit in the technology world, that's not going to be much different in the cannabis world. So if you're investing in a company, you're going to be a minority a shareholder within that company. They're going to be the ones controlling it ultimately. Um, you have to be certain, confident, and um, excited for that those group of operators to continue operating that company. And they have to be coachable and take your advice when they need to. And they have to push back when they need to as well, because not everything that a, an investor thinks is the way it goes. They're not the ones on the street. It's the operators that are on the street uh, working their tails off to, to build this thing out. So um, you have to really uh, buy into it. It is like a marriage. Um, and another stat that I like to use is the average marriage in the U.S. is about 10 years as well. So when you're investing in a company, it's similar to getting married to someone because you're, you're in it for that same average amount of time that, that you see. So you have to be really certain that that's the person for you. Well, uh, using the uh, marriage analogy, um, when you're rating and grading these companies, is uh, you know human capital the number one uh, asset that you look at? Is it location? Is it footprints? Sort of what are the top five attributes that you're looking at a possible acquisition target? Uh, well, I don't know the top five, but I'd say probably the number one would be the license um, okay. just because it is a regulated industry. So w- what are you really playing into? It's very hard to get new licenses, as we know, in this industry. Um, th- there's a bit of arbitrage taking shape right now where there's folks that are getting social equity licenses that 
um, and profiting off of that might not actually be those individuals, candidates that will be for social equity licenses. So you have to, it's a bit of noise in the industry that I think should be cleared up by some of the by regulation. Um, that said, it's, it's a highly regulated industry. So, so understanding what you're buying or what you're investing into is important. Close second is the, the team. Like who is it that you're actually investing into? As an investor, as an acquirer, you're not the one typically running the company. It's the people, the, the feet on the street that are running it. And you're not their boss. Um, you're, you're a partner with them. And you have, to, you have to really understand what that means, which is like you're not there to tell them what to do with your money. You're there to work with them. What can we do? What, what introductions can we make? Do you want to talk to an analyst or a bank or a consultant or a competitor or anything? You tell us who you want to talk to. We have a real deep Rolodex. We'll introduce you to whoever you want. That's a very important piece that an investor has to go in it with um, instead of just trying to invest in sitting on the sidelines and trying to see if the, if the company will succeed. If you don't bring that value, you're, you're quickly going to be kicked out of the market. Um, and then far down below that is the actual product itself. Why? Because if you have the right team in place, they can pivot the product to be what's what the consumer wants. Uh, so the product itself, especially on the early stage, isn't as important as it is the team and the way they've executed till that point in time. Um, talking about the deep Rolodex and what you can do, uh, what would you say are some of your strengths uh, for a partner in terms of giving them the right connections? Is it you know on the operational standpoint? Is it on uh, the equipment standpoint? Is it on the retail uh, side? So that, that's a really exciting part with our uh, strategic investment and partnership with Scott's Milk Grow and the Hawthorne Group. There is that they have uh, they have deep, deep, deep connections into a lot of grows within North America. They've serviced them. They've provided product and, and parts to them. Um, so they, they have a really good understanding of cultivation, extraction, manufacturing, processing, etc. Beyond that, on the on the softer side, whether it be recruiters or uh, consultants or bankers or analysts. Um, we, we have that all covered on the, the corporate side. So there's, there's, uh, there's not much that we cannot provide from a, from a value perspective. Um, and, uh, and our team, like we're always ready to roll up our sleeves too and, and, and do the dirty work. I've always had this analogy that I've told my team where uh, you had to play in the clouds and in the, in the dirt and not in the middle. Can't get caught in the middle. So you either have to be highly strategic and look at the, the 50,000 foot view of where this industry is going to be headed and are we going in the right direction? Or you have to really roll up your sleeves, get in the dirt and start working. If you get caught in the middle, you're not doing either or and nothing happens in the middle. So um, that's kind of the perspective that we have with our, with our companies and our partners, which is we, ju- we just keep working or look, look at it strategically. Do you prefer to play in the clouds or play in the dirt? I actually love the dirt. <laughs> um, I, I love playing in the dirt. I, I just love getting things done. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fanatic on to-do lists. I have like these long to-do lists and I just like aim to mark things off the list. And I think that's how I get a lot of things done. I've always been told I'm extremely efficient in, in what, what gets done. That said, um, the strategic landscape and looking at it from a 50,000 foot view is probably more fun to do uh, with, with other people to sit there and say, well, where do you think this industry is going to head? What happens to the grows in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania when interstate commerce rolls out and California and Arizona are pumping most of the cannabis out. Um, what, what, how do the hemp farmers get into this play? Can they even compete with quality cannabis? How does the licit market play out? Um, 
you're seeing in states like New York, for example, where decriminalization took effect, adult use or recreational hasn't kicked in, patient counts uh, have stopped growing, and people are moving back to the illicit market because now they don't get criminalized for it, right? So um, the, 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 the play of how legislation and regulation gets into effect of supply and demand and what people buy and sell, that to me is very fascinating. And we love seeing that. We love talking about it, as well as we love talking about the brand. So we, we are um, adamant followers of Headset and BDSA, more so Headset is a portfolio company of ours. Um, we, we love the data that Headset provides and we, we dish on it. We talk about it. We send emails around. We have uh, internal meetings around it just to see how the brands are shaping up, how they're going up and down. Why is it that they're doing that? Is it a certain marketing uh, thing that they have? Is it an endorsement they have? Or is it a new state they got into? Is it a price point that they're competing against? Um, we like going to those states, seeing the products, trying the products and understanding like what, what is going on in the consumer's mindset when they walk into a store. We like meeting the people behind it. We love all of that stuff. I, 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 you can tell how enthusiastic I am about the industry. Right. Um, there's probably nothing in the industry that I dislike. Um, it is... A, a, a remarkable industry to be part of. Well, that's, uh, I kind of feel the same way is that in this, because I actually um, come from the design engineering industry. So I was deep in the tech side uh, as well. And coming over to cannabis, it's just like, man, everybody's cool here. You know, <laughs> like where uh, the tech side of the business is just, you know, I mean, it's, it's so not oversaturated, but like, it's very cutthroat where it's very collaborative in cannabis. And I've just, I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially on the operating side. Um, there, there is some rivalry, call it on the executive side at times that I do see, but on the operating side, um, I, I've noticed that there is a lot of co-opetition. Um, so if you're working for a large MSO and you have an issue, but you have a friend in another MSO, you can freely call them up, give them your problem. They'll give you some advice. You're working together on it. And you do see from an HR perspective that there's people jumping into the different MSOs and single estate operators all the time. Then mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're moving ship, moving their families, going to different states, building things, getting them up to speed, moving to another state. So it, it is the same group of people. Mind you, they're much bigger than what you see in Canada just because of the, the population size. Um, but um, it is extremely collaborative and, and great to see. That said, there are still some cowboys in the industry. Like with, with any risk, there is... Uh, um, play, there, there are players out there that don't see it the way you and I probably see it. Um, in Canada, those were pro- prolific. They've mostly been uh, jettisoned away. I think the same thing will happen in the U.S. as the market matures more. In there, you'll see it professionalize more and become something that you can really relate to. That view from the clouds, when do you see federal legalization in the United States? My pick is federal legalization between three to five years mm-hmm. and uh, um, interstate commerce between five to 10. How does that change what you guys do from an operational level now? So you have three to five years to get everything in order, be exactly who you want to be when federal legalization opens up. Because once that happens, there's going to be a flood of money in there and the, the money goes towards the companies who have uh, better not reputation, but a better foundation than who the other ones are. You're even seeing that right now, the cannabis downturn that's been like the last year. Um, a lot of the money's flowed to the top five MSOs rel- relative to the other players in the industry. Um, so that, that that's kind of your, your view. Interstate commerce is probably the more 
the, the bigger risk for a lot of these companies. So if you're building cultivation or extraction in some of the more expensive states, um, you might get outperformed by companies developed in Arizona and California, where it's a much more drier climate. Uh, you can you can have some great cannabis in indoor or even outdoor. Um, and, and how does that spread to other parts of the U.S.? And how do those facilities that house hundreds of, or thousands of employees in those states that are not as competitive, how do they, if they fare out in interstate commerce? I think that is like the big day for cannabis uh, because you're going to actually see how supply and demand really rolls out nationally versus state by state. What can, as it rolls out state by state, what can operators or people that are looking to get into the business in states that have very little or no legalization do to get started? Or are they kind of just waiting for, are they just in a waiting mode? I mean, in some ways you are in a waiting mode because you're waiting for the politicians to really put things together and get into like a medical and then a, a recreational adult use regime. Um, and that point in time, it's always important to, to contact your, your, your local lawmaker and, and try to um, not lobby, but vouch for legalization. The numbers tell the story. Polls are consistently showing favor uh, favorize, favoritization of legalization for uh, constituents in, in many states. So, um, and then the, the next step would be just to understand the rules. So the rules change all the time, whether it's a new state or an old state, um, new state or old state relative to legalization. So it's always good to understand the rules. How can you play into it? Uh, if there's a social equity context, how do you, how can you apply for it? Do you need to partner with someone? What are the rules around, um, ownership? Uh, it is a lot of hard work. Uh, I, I do find a lot of people want to get into it, but don't necessarily want to do the reading or the hard work to get into it. Um, and that, that's the first step, understanding the rules. The second step is looking around to, to neighboring states and saying, how does competition in my state versus those neighboring states play into each other? So we, we noticed that in some states where they have a medical regime, the borders of it that might have an adult use regime, you see people driving across the border, picking up the cannabis, bringing it back. Um, and, and so the pricing really matters between the states that are next to each other. And then the third phase would be to look at um, just how pricing has matured in more mature states. So uh, you, you look at somewhere like California, which is probably the most mature out of any state that it's out there. Um, it is considerably cheaper to buy cannabis in California than it is to buy it in Michigan. And then when you, when you uh, adjust for cost of living, that gap even widens more. I think our uh, our, our math work came out to be 40% difference between California and Michigan for a gram of cannabis. Wow. Uh, and, and then if you, if you take that, if you say like, okay, like if we look at any limited license state or brand new state that's coming on board and you see all these players that go out and say, I have EBITDA this and I have cash flow this. Well, what if we applied the pricing and the standard of living of California onto that state? How would those companies change? And a vast majority of them turn to the negative because it's just very difficult to cultivate quality cannabis at those prices that you see in California, which is why it's difficult to make money in California relative to other states. And that's the that's a viewpoint any operator needs to have is someday I will be in California and how can I cope with that? Is Riv Capital focused primarily on the US right now and going forward or is it still uh, Canada and a little bit of Europe? Fully, fully U.S. focused, like 100% of our focus on the U.S. Uh, we do um, 
help our portfolio companies that we still have and, and they're located in Canada um, and the US, nothing in Europe anymore. Uh, but at this, but our, I don't know, 95, 98% of our focus is on the US market. Do you have a personal connection to cannabis? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had a personal connection since high school. Um, just, uh, I never understood. Even to this day, I tell my wife, like when we're watching a basketball game or a hockey game and I see like the, the Bud Light commercials happen, I'm like, kids are watching this. Like, how is it this is on? But like, you don't see a cannabis commercial coming on, um, even in social media. So it kind of irks me that the alcohol industry is so prolific and so accepted and so many people die from alcohol and you don't really see deaths from cannabis. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, not to say there's no risk to it. It is a vice. And with every vice, there is a, uh, a, a negative component to it. And I think recent studies around uh, cannabis dependence really shows that you might not get addicted to the properties in cannabis, but you can get addicted to smoking something for the certain, to put you in a certain state every single day. Um, and those things we need to really, as industry participants, even if it's not the best thing for my bottom line, you need to bring those up. You need to talk about those because it's all part of the, the pains of grow, growing this industry. At the end of the day, though, no matter how you look at it, as a society, this is a great investment for us to make. The medical components of what cannabis can do, as well as the recreational components of how it can displace alcohol, which is a very dangerous product. It's a fantastic investment for us to make as a society relative to what we've done to alcohol and prescription drugs. Is your favorite product to use in your portfolio? Uh, I love the, the, the product. So uh, one, one of our portfolio companies right now is uh, the, the Canadian arm of Gage. Um, so it's called uh, Noya. Uh, they, they brought cookies into Canada. I love trying out product from our portfolio companies and understanding their SKUs and what they do. That said, I'm not only tied to them. Um, it's always good to try a new product, understand how others are thinking about the industry, talk to those producers as well. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for stories. So hmm. I like to, I like products that have a story behind it, whether it's through the marketing or through the, the people we know that created the product and why they chose the strain, what they did to it, how they grew it. Um, all of that to me is very important. I'm not like that in the wine world, which is like a huge thing, like with connoisseurs but in the cannabis world, just because you're in it day by day and you see all the players. Um, it's just always nice to see how the product relates to who's talking about it and who's making it. In your portfolio, is there one particular success story that, you know, uh, you find particularly, um, motivating? Um, so one of our, there, there's many, <laughs> I'm trying to think of which one to talk about. Probably the, the most successful one would be Terrasend, which we got into, um, in 2017, they were a Canadian producer located in Mississauga, which is a suburb of Toronto. Um, medical uh, only switch to recreational legalization happened. And in 20, middle of 2018, the, the, the founders of that company came to us and said that they were looking to move to the U.S. market, uh, restructure the company, restructure the ownership, restructure the shares. And their tenacity and their persistence and their ability to push all the noise of this was like right after Canadian legalization when stocks were up and they said, no, no, no data showing the U S market. Let's go to it before anybody else does. And they've created a multi-billion dollar company since then. That to me is, is a fantastic story for anybody in this industry to um, just get away from the noise, get away from what everyone else is saying 
look at the data, look at where the, the puck is headed. I know it's a Canadian term, uh, but Wayne, Wayne Gretzky came up with it. Uh, look where it's headed and, and focus on that. And, um, and I've only been in this industry for four years, but I've seen time and time again where uh, market participants, the capital markets have got it completely wrong, whether it was extraction technologies in 2019 to, um, to uh, Canadian legalized LPs and how they could go into the U.S. the next day uh, in, in 2018 uh, to 2020 when um, nobody's really paying attention to the MSOs. So um, the, the, these things, you need to really step away from the capital markets, come up with your own thesis, look at the data, look at what people are doing around you and come up with your own thought of where this thing is headed. And chances are you'll be more right than people who probably don't even touch the product, but invest in it and complain about the capital markets all day. Um, you mentioned that you have a little bit of news to share soon. Do you know when that might be? So I uh, don't want to put anybody in a, in a spot that they, they're not comfortable with, but in our last press release for our uh, uh, Q3 um, earnings, we did mention that we want to make an announcement before the, the, the fiscal year end. Our fiscal year end ends in about 16 days. So somewhere within that period of time, we're hoping to make an announcement. Excellent. Well, um, before we get out of here, is there anything else that you know we might have missed or that you want to make sure the uh, Cannabis Equipment News audience knows about Riv Capital? No, I think this was a fantastic discussion. Um, probably some of the best questions I've I've, I've heard for, for a long period of time. So just truly blessed to be in this industry, truly blessed to be uh, part of this this podcast as well. And um, looking forward to, to seeing how things play out. Excellent. Well, Narbe, thank you very much for joining me today. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review or again, sharing the podcast with a coworker or friend. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. All right, from Narbe Alexandrian, president and CEO of Riv Capital, I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast.